This week on the podcast, I explore the future of investing with Simon Brown, who's a well-known South African market commentator and owner of the financial education platform Just One Lap. We chat about ESG, Oatly, what's happening to the South African economy, and what opportunities exist for startups at this time. Welcome to the podcast, Heroes of Futurism, with me, Jonathan Cherry. This podcast is about the future and how to create it, what opportunities exist, what ideas are worth thinking about, and how you can begin to design the future that you want. Let's start right now. Simon Brown uh, is a financial journalist, but I think he's a lot more than just a financial journalist. He he really is someone who's uh, an, an anchor for the financial news in South Africa and interviews uh, many of the the icons of South African investing on uh, Business Day TV and involved with uh, lots of the, the local financial magazines. So Simon, thank you very much for being on my podcast this time. <laughs> Jonathan, absolute pleasure. Great. So what I wanted to just start off with is uh, actually just a little bit of history as to how you got into this game. I know that you yourself are, are a, an investor in, in, uh, in stocks and shares and equities. Uh, how, did you, how did you get to where you are now? Because you're, a, you're a, fi- a freelance financial journalist, but also an investor. So what is your story? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to the 80s. And, and yeah, I was still in school. I matriculated in 87. I rephrased that. I wrote matric in 87. Um, and I, the markets just interested me. There wasn't a lot then. No, the market was active. But in terms of getting data, I was living in parts of K. ZN, I mean, you know, parts living in Shishlui, uh, in Pangeni, sort of places like that. Um, and, and just the whole numbers, the whole thing. My, my father was slightly involved. My grandfather, uh, a lot. He had played the bucket shops in Durban West Street in the sort of twenties and thirties and made money there, which was a rarity and then would lose it in the weekend at the horse races. Um, so, 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 you know, reading financial pages, picking up stuff from my father and, and sorry, my grandfather and just, you know, loving numbers and looking at this and thinking to myself and you know obviously this is the lead up to what was ultimately the crash of 87 mm. but looking at this and thinking it just it just looked a little bit easy you know i was doing paper trading back then using monopoly money yeah. um and and you know making it hand over fist and it never occurred to me it would be a profession um i always wanted to go into computers but it was just something that just looked like great fun that one could always be be doing on the side Mm. So you've really been a, a, a retail investor on your own and you've made a living out of that since you left school. That's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't live off my investing. I, I, I mean, I, I, perhaps I could. I've never put myself under that pressure. Um, I mean, I studied film and video, um, and I was I, I bought my first shares literally a week before that crash of '87. Um, and then during the '90s, the internet came along. I was I'd, I'd been on Beltel in the '80s. I got involved in the internet very early, CompuServe and stuff like that. And then in the late '90s, um, I think it was iAfrica. We're doing a, a special deal where you know for i think 300 bucks you got a website and a domain and Mm -hmm. for a year and i I launched i think six different websites just taking the view that this internet thing was going to be big Mm. um and the one that took off was a a derivative website warrants Uh, the website was sa warrants 
Um, and literally, that was March of 2000, and I, I was getting offers to buy it and uh, front page of the Business Times. Um, and that just then propelled uh, uh, that website. So I focused on that and abandoned the others um, and, and just got more and more into, in, into the industry. And, you know, you were introducing me at the beginning. I mean, in essence, probably more than anything, I'm a teacher. And I think even, you know, my, my radio shows and the like, I mean, what I'm always just trying to do is, 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 is help my listener, my reader, my viewer, whatever the case may be, um, just understand things in the market better because this is not a rocket science industry, but like many industries, we, we cloak it in jargon to make us seem smarter and to create a barrier to keep people out in a sense. Mm, so on that point, how you estimate uh, how many retail investors are there in South Africa? Uh, so, I mean, that's a number that no one's been able to pin down and, and easy equities has probably changed that. If I look at people who are actively buying shares on the JSE, individual shares, and I don't mean trading, they, they, they could be trading or they could be buying and, and keeping for, for the long haul. It might be a couple of hundred thousand, um, you know, maybe 200,000. Easy equities has changed that to a to a fair degree um, and, and because of their low cost uh, and fractional business model. And 2020 has seen a significant boom in registrations globally on, on stockbrokers. So that number probably higher now. Uh, if we start to expand it to people who've opened a tax-free account, those came in five years ago, um, I think that has quite a fair bit expanded the the the, the base so, you know, that's you know and i'm not being dismissive it's a great product it's very passive you you know you put your money in you buy your etfs and you come back in a couple of decades mm. um but it's doing what it was designed to do it, it's working incredibly well because of the limits people tend to leave their money in the tax-free account they don't you know yank it out for a holiday or you know a new car or something um they're buying passive etfs so they they get low cost they get broadly diverse. Um, and I think that's probably had uh, a fairly significant impact as well. Mm, so that seems to be a major trend. I know I've bought um, one or two of those American-based uh, ETF uh, trackers. Um, mm -hmm. And I must say that it gives you exposure into the American market that I just wouldn't be able to afford uh, on my own. Uh, and it's done incredibly well in the last while. Obviously, a lot of that is <laughs> propped up through this quantitative easing and, and all of that that's happening in the United States. But I must say, as a, a fire and forget kind of product, it's um, it's it's really done very, very well for me. It, it absolutely has. You know, and, and I grew up of the believing the concept of what we call bottom draw investing, you know, buy General Electric, General Motors, Kodak, um, and put in the bottom draw for your grandchildren. And I use those three companies because, you know, one is bankrupt, one went bankrupt in 08 and got saved. Mm. And even General Electric, which is the non-bankrupt one, is, is, is no longer that, you know, high quality. They skipped a dividend for like the first time in in 50 years that they became more of a sort of financial services type of business. Mm. Um, and, and that then leads you to shorter term, which is, you know, not tax efficient, it's more risky, et cetera. The ETF is perfect. They, you know, as my colleague Christia van Heerden always says, they're self-cleaning. You know, yeah. when Steinhoff went bust, 
it was in my ETF. Mm. I hardly noticed it. Three months later, it's booted out and we go off again. Yeah. So it, it, it's just, that is, you know, an ETF, and, and we're talking broad, diverse, the niche ETF is a different game entirely. But a broad, diverse ETF is really a fire and forget. You can buy it and literally come back in, in decades' time. It'll still be there. It'll still be functioning. Uh, and if it's a broad-based uh, ETF, it, it's probably going to give you a, a solid return and certainly have beaten inflation. Mm, but it's not very sexy, is it? It's not uh, Wolf of oh, no. Wall Street kind of stuff. So <laughs> I, yeah, so I, th- the one thing I really want to know, Simon, is that I know that in, in the United States there, uh, there are a lot of retail investors. There seems to be a culture or a mindset um, of investing directly into the New York Stock Exchange uh, over there. Why do you think that it's so small in South Africa? It, it really is just a, a handful of people that are, are taking the gamble, as so to say. Yeah, that's a great point, Jonathan. I mean, and, and in Australia, it's even larger in terms of the number of individuals. And Australia had some particular issues. For example, in Australia, their equivalent of the uh, retirement annuity, there's a little bit sort of 5% that you can self-manage yourself, and, and that created interest. A number of large uh, uh, companies listed that had been state-owned, uh, Qantas, uh, the Telstar, etc., which were there, you know, uh, Commonwealth Bank, etc., which then gave shares to literally millions of Australians, and of course, their population's only about, what, 10 or 12 million. Mm. Um, America, I think it, it's very much, it, it's partly been the access to it, it's partly still a hangover from the dot-com boom where everybody became a a, a day trader or at least an investor. But I think it's also perhaps just the whole sort of American psyche, which is perhaps a a little more uh, uh, gung-ho on on the the sort of uh, uh, business culture, you know, their ability to to fire easy, their ability to start a business that collapses and you just move on, you know, no one holds it against you forever in a day and and Mm. that sort of thing. um, South Africa, of course, you know, we have, we've got our inequality issues. We have 60 million people. Um, but, but, you know, you, you, you need to have, you need to have a job first. Then you need to have disposable yeah. income. Um, and we've also had, I mean, the barriers to entry around in terms of the fees that you used to pay. And, and, and it's fundamentally different today. But even just, you know, I, I worked for online share trading at Standard Bank for a while. And when they launched in 1999, their fees, if memory serves, was one percent and that was considered radical mm. um yeah you know, now now you're paying 0.25 0.5 percent and and you know in the u.s there are brokerages that are coming in at zero so there were massive barriers to entry uh just just simple stuff like you know i remember opening uh, my first brokerage account i mean i couldn't actually because and this is in the 80s they wanted twenty thousand rand i mean like yeah. i was a matric kid i had 120 bucks and mm. my grandfather wrangled a deal and unbeknownst to me, also paid my brokerage fees because my brokerage fees would have been more than 120 bucks. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and as you say, uh, the online opportunities now are, are, are cheap. I know that I do, uh, I do some investing and I do it through PSG online. And I think I pay something mm-hmm. like 98 rand as long as I keep it below a certain threshold. But 98 rand mm-hmm. to do a trade is... Uh, really reasonable. And it costs something like 40 rand a month just to have the account. You know, you're educating people and you're encouraging people to invest directly into the stock market using these platforms and that kind of thing. 
I want to really know from you what on earth is going on with South Africa Incorporated. It just feels that in the last six or seven years, uh, portfolios have gone absolutely nowhere. And some of the some of the most well-known companies in South Africa, and I'm thinking of uh, famous brands or Woolies, they have absolutely tanked. I mean, these um, these share prices have come off dramatically, probably because of some really bad decisions, uh, bad investments that have been made by by these companies. But the value destruction in the South African market seems incredible. Um, am I right in saying that? Is that what has happened? Yeah, you are right. I mean, I, I was, you know, it, it, if, if we look back, I mean, our gains, in fact, I want to pull more data here. I mean, our markets hit 46,000 in 2014. We now are at, call it 51,000. Basically, we're up 12% in six years. I mean, that is a, sh- that's what we should be doing. In fact, prior to 2014, our annual, annual, return was probably running at 13 or 14 percent and it's weird because in some senses South Africa has some of the best business people and and I think of SAB Miller, uh, Maya Khan and and those people who you know the likes of Kevin Hedewick and famous brands came out of. We we absolutely and we have on on global stages in many cases punched above our weight. Mm. Um, Sol Kersner, you know, parked the politics aside for the moment, but what he did uh, uh, you know, globally and even just locally, uh, just, you know, astounding stuff. And then, you know, it's been, a, it's been a tough decade for South Africa as a country. You know, load shedding started in 2008. We're now 12 years into it. Um, that's mm. really, really tough. Yeah. Our, our mining industry, which has, you know, basically, you know, kept our economy going for 120 years, mm. The problem is your minds get deeper and deeper. It gets harder and more expensive. Uh, legislation hasn't been easy. Uh, lack of power hasn't been easy. Suddenly, you know, that part of the economy starts to hurt. That ripples into manufacturing. It ripples in all over the place, the auxiliary mm. sort of businesses that surround the mining. But to your point directly, you know what's happened is, is that you sit on top of your hill in South Africa, you, you, and you, the two examples you mentioned, famous brands and Woolies, and, and there's many others. We'll pick on those two for now. Mm. You know, you, you're top of the hill. You, you're almost at the point, you dominate the market. You're what we would call broadly X growth. It's, it's going to be hard to really grow much beyond inflation. You can eke out some efficiencies, but, you know, where isn't there a Woolies store or a famous brands outlet? You know, mm. there's not much growth left. So then you cast your eye internationally and then you go off and you buy assets globally or you expand globally and the wheels come off and that's not unique to South Africa if we look globally mergers and acquisitions have a success rate of about 30 percent in other words two out of three simply don't work and in South Africa we have a the similar sort of, of of ratio although I'm frantically trying to think of some that have worked. I mean, ShopRite's expansion into Africa, which started, you know, back in the 90s, has done well. But, you know, Telcom tried Nigeria. They failed. Uh, Ultron tried East Africa. They failed. Um, Just left, right and center. Mm. And, And it was that desire to... Where do we find the next bit of growth from? Let's become a global player rather than a regional emerging market player. How great will that be? And it just fails. You know, if you are sitting in in South Africa and you're buying an asset in the UK or Australia or America, 
trust me, you haven't seen it first. You know, a dozen Americans, Brits and Aussies have looked at this asset and walked away from it one reason or another. And then you pop up and you, you know, pay top price and you overpay. You, you just overpay every time. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing. And, and it, it's decimated. You know, the push has been, the CEOs would tell you, the push for globalization was driven by shareholders who wanted the returns and everything. And like, you know, maybe, maybe not, but, but, but the returns have been abysmal, um, across the board. You know, I, I'm struggling to think of really successful uh, offshore ventures. There undoubtedly have been. And, you know, as soon as you stop recording, I'll probably remember three of them, mm. but, uh, uh, they, they're so few and far between that they don't spring to mind. You know, they don't roll off the tip of your tongue nice and easy. Yeah. Okay. So something that's in the news right now, uh, TFG have just, Put a well. I think they have purchased uh, Jet from the Edcon mm-hmm. Group for 480 million. There are obviously some conditions that go along with that. But um, do you think that that was a good purchase? I think it was. <clears throat> I think. Excuse me. They 480 million. They get 370 stores. So that's about call it about 13 million a store. They also get. Uh, about 800 million of stock. Um, now they've got to sell that stock, of course, mm. and they get about a billion rand of, of lease obligations, which goes on to the, the liability side. But what they also then get, they only take in the stores that they like, the good stores, and it immediately takes the Fashini group, who typically have been sort of mid to up market LSM and positions them in the, in the lower LSMs, sort of competing with the Pepco, Ackermans and the like. Um, I think a really, really good deal for them, a, a really, really good price for them there's going to have to be there's a lot of integration in terms of systems point of sale there's a lot of learning from Fashini group around different lsm and and how it works uh it's a it's a, a the jet has been very much a credit provider whereas Fashini group is, is more cash but uh you know for 480 million i think they got a really really good deal and the Fashini group they're top retailers i mean they, they've run a really really good business uh over the last couple of decades um, and yeah, I, I think a top deal for them. Yeah, and it probably gives them access to, as you were saying, a market which they don't necessarily have, a, a value market. Um, yeah. And in many ways, I think they're vertically integrated with their manufacturing. So this probably just gives them more scale in order to uh, get economies of scale out of out of that manufacturing. So good brand, good price. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, you know, they initially said they weren't interested. I thought someone like a ShopRite might want to to snap it up. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think so. Good brand, good price, good fit, um, and, and opens them to a new market. And a, and a market which under, you know, a pandemic, your your, your more value market, uh, products are going to do much better than your, your higher cost product. Mm. Okay, so Simon, uh, let's uh, cast our eyes into the future. This, of course, is a podcast mm-hmm. that's focused on the future. What are your feelings about the South African economy and South African business and the opportunities uh, that uh, are seemingly all around us? Are you optimistic? What are you, what are you feeling? I mean, understandably, there are huge challenges in our way, but do you, do you feel that there is still hope? <laughs> 
I, I do. I mean, I, I've never been an, an Afro pessimist. I've always sat in the, the, the Afro optimist side. I've always, you know, been 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 very positive around South Africa, notwithstanding our challenges. Everywhere has challenges. They they just different. Um, but but the pandemic has has fundamentally changed things. I mean, there was that uh, report out earlier this week, um, you know, which was alluding to perhaps three million jobs lost. I mean, that that starts to take our unemployment, and that was just in back in in, in April. And, and, and May, uh, that starts to take our unemployment to sort of 50%. That was the National Income Dynamics Study. Mm. Um, takes us to chronic unemployment, um, which is going to be, you know, we've struggled with high unemployment, you know, massively high unemployment forever. This is going to put us in a new level. Some of those are going to come back, but our idea that we could then sort of ever get unemployment into single digit that that boat is is so far out to out to sea right now. Mm. Our challenges have become significantly harder. Um, we've been downgraded to junk. Uh, we 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 we've got a budget that that frankly I thought the February budget was really really good. There was a lot of T's and C's and a lot that had to be done, a lot of promises that had to be kept. But at least it it, it, it ticked all the right boxes, um, and and now that's all out the window. And and we're not the U. Who can send everyone a twelve hundred dollar check and do a paycheck protection plan um, and and you know take a trillion dollars at, at stock market etc. We just simply don't have those resources. So you know, am I am I pessimistic, South Africa? Do I think that we are going to become a failed state? I don't, but I think our challenges have become significantly larger. Frankly, in the last four or five months, um, they've always been big, and now they're just that much bigger. And yeah. You know, Pre-COVID, it, it was our, of our own making. Uh, COVID was just the worst thing at the worst time, well, for the planet, but obviously it, it, it really hurt the, the sort of developing economies and it's particularly hurt the South African economy. Mm. So what do you think needs to happen in order for us to get back on track? I mean, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I, I like the idea of a basic income grant. I, I, I'm a hardened capitalist, but I think that, you know, it's, it's important that people are able to to eat and the like. And, and that money comes straight back into society. Mm. It gets spent, it, it generates economic activity. And the idea that people spend it on drugs and are lazy, the research disproves that the world over. Um, I think that's a good start. I, I think, you know, particularly my wife tongue in cheek said, you know what, now that cigarettes suddenly cost 150 bucks a packet, why doesn't government just add an extra 100 rand tax to every packet? Because, you know, it's 50 rand legit, yeah, that sort of thing. Mm. I think there's some spaces where we can, where we can, you know, use some of this, this pandemic. And, and the obvious ones are sin taxes, cigarettes and liquor. You want to go buy your wine? Sure. But you know what? The tax on it just doubled or tripled. Mm. And, and that will bring a, a lot more into it. Um, I think we have to very much prioritize what's important to us. You know, let's touch on SAA for a moment. There's a value to having SAA because they will fly some routes that are perhaps less, less viable. And that brings commerce, goods, people, etc. into our country. Mm. There's undoubtedly a value to having a national carrier which is more patriotic than profit-driven. But at this point in our life as a country, you know, the 10 billion to 20 billion that we needed is absolutely better served somewhere else. Now, I know 
if you send that to Sasser, it's just a drop in the bucket. But it, it it's an important you know, uh, uh, sort of statement to have been made from from Treasury, from government. Um, and, and then the, yeah, the simplest one, and you know, everyone has said this before, our president included, we need to see uh, a corrupt officials in orange jumpsuits being sent off to Sun City and not the nice one with the pool in the casino, mm. um, the prison outside Pretoria. Um, you know, and, and you know, the National Prosecuting Authority has said it's hard and that they're under-resourced, et cetera, et cetera. But just from a sense right now, the, the last year, every country has corruption, but our, our leakage to it is markedly more. And, and part of the trick is the impunity is because well, where's the downside almost in a sense? I mean, yes, I could name you a few people who have uh, ended up in jail. The VBS uh, nine are currently in court. Mm. Um, but there's certainly, you know, if you're, if you're someone, you know, stuffing off a few million down in the Eastern Cape or wherever it might be, you're pretty much thinking to yourself, nah, no one's going to catch me. And the worst part is at this point, you're right. Mm, and even if you are caught, it's, you know, there's political will to prosecute people, which just doesn't seem to be there. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and to me, it's simple. I don't know. Pick a couple of cabinet ministers or ex-cabinet ministers, get them into court, get them into the orange jumpsuit, um, and, and suddenly things will be different. Yeah. The challenge is, though, that, you know, one of my arguments is that this virus and our response to it is largely as a result of um, inadequate resources in our public health care. Um, yeah. So now the government tells the entire economy to shut down because of their own corruption. Um, and then they don't necessarily provide the finance in order for the economy to get back on its feet. That is just yeah. counterproductive. You know, the, the, the 500 billion that was announced by President Ramaphosa, which wasn't really 500 billion because some of it was, for example, 200 billion of loans that they would secure and the like. Very nice. But, but you know, I remember the 2010 budget when there was 500 billion just for infrastructure. Mm. Um, now, you know, we can debate whether that money came in and was used, et cetera. Um, and that number eventually got to as high as 850 billion. Um, but you're right. It, it's a drop in the ocean. Mm. Uh, we we need, we need a lot more. And in many cases, I use education as an example. We spend markedly more money per child than Mozambique, yet the Mozambique childs do markedly better on standardized tests than we do. Mm. It, it's not always we don't have the money. It's just we use it ineffectively. And unfortunately, to your point, we, we're paying for that during a pandemic. Yeah. So, Simon, I, I know you don't necessarily look at small business uh, because your, your focus is on big listed entities. But if you are a small business, if you are, um, you, you know, a company that is focused on growth, I think up until now, the number of sources uh, where you can obtain capital has been fairly limited and probably quite expensive. I suppose one of the the good things about this pandemic and falling interest rates is that money uh, is becoming a lot more affordable mm -hmm. for, for growth. Yeah, so I guess the question is, do you see that as a, as an opportunity? Do you see that as a as a positive? Yes, I mean, you know, cheap money is always useful. And, and you know, I always use the example of Brian Joffrey who started Bidvest 
about a week after P.W. Boetcher's Rubicon speech in Durban, which was, what, 85-ish, 86-ish. Um, and, and, you know, at the time, people must have thought he was absolutely crazy. The rand was crashing and people were fleeing. Um, adversity often does create opportunity. And I don't, you know, if you've got a great business idea, it, it needs to be robust. Now, as robust as surviving a pandemic is perhaps more than most planned for. But I do think there's always opportunity. And I, I always say to folks, you know what, it, it's not a lack of ideas. There's always business ideas out there. I mean, and I've sat down with people before just as a fun thought experiment to come up with 100 business ideas, you know, over an evening of a, of a bottle of wine. Um, it's execution. It, it's around actually executing that business idea, making it happen. And, and truthfully, part of that is about raising capital. Mm. Uh, if, if you speak to folks like Mark Ashton and, and others in, in, in the sort of VC space, we don't have a shortage of capital capital in, in, in this country. Um, the banks are, as always, fairly cautious, but but certainly there's there's capital out there. There's people willing to invest. There are banks who will lend, but they're not going to lend you $35 million with no track record. They're going to want to see track record. And I want to see you putting skin in the game and, and, and putting your own uh, sort of uh, balance sheet at risk. Um, and then they're going to want to see the ability to execute. And, and I was saying earlier, you know, one of the things that South Africans have done and do have a track record of is the ability to take ideas and, and execute on them, to turn, you know, a little local beer maker in South Africa into a global player and to turn a little Bidvest, which owned, I think it was Premier Foods, was one of their first assets into, you know, one of the biggest on the JSC, it's split into two halves, one an international half. Um, so I, I'm always of the view, and I think, you know, issue times like now, you know, adversity almost in times creates opportunity and, and, and you know, forces us into corners sometimes and makes us maybe move into areas that aren't quite our comfort zone. Mm. Um, and to your initial point, Money is cheap, and and you know banks are never friendly lenders. That that's never going to change. Uh, but at this point in time, the, the cash is cheaper to access, and 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 therefore better times for starting businesses. And as much as we have challenges in the country, we have opportunities as well. Mm, exactly, and I'm just um, I'm just thinking about you know we started this conversation talking about some of the bigger companies that are struggling, and I think some of the um, the effect of that is that that opens up space for smaller entrepreneurs to start um, to start offering where the big guys have failed. Uh, I'm just thinking in the in the clothing retail space with the the collapse of the Edcon Group. That means that there is there's a hole there. Uh, I know that yeah. some of it is going to be taken up by the sale of Jet to TFG, but um, I really do believe that that doesn't mean that those customers just disappear. They, the demand is still there, uh, but this massive conglomerate is now, uh, you know, is struggling. And I think that that opens up entrepreneurial space for those that can then go and fill it. I think 100%. Example, Edcon had the rights in South Africa to Doc Martens. Um, and I used to get them. There was a Doc Martens store in Rosebank. You could pick it up at some of the Edgar's stores themselves. Um, and they gave up those rights about a year or so ago. And at this point in time, getting Doc Martens or replacement laces or something in South Africa is, is, is a challenge. It absolutely is. I mean, I've found a source eventually and they haven't arrived yet, but yeah, you know, there's a space for an entrepreneur to, you know, phone up Doc Martens and say, Hey guys, like you haven't got anyone here. You know, South Africans like your shoes. Mm. Let's strike a deal. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so I want to talk about something which is an emerging trend, which I, I find quite interesting. Um, more yeah. and more, there seems to be a demand for radical transparency, not just from how a company makes its products, uh, like what we saw uh, over, over many years. People have always uh, criticized companies like Nike for using sweatshops in, mm-hmm. in the East. Uh, but now what I find quite interesting is that there are a lot of... Um, there are a lot of startups which are producing plant-based products. They they sh- uh, they tend to say that they are incredibly ethical. They are good for the planet. They're good for people. And then, as they grow, they need to take on capital. And one example is <laughs> is a company called Oatly, which is a Swedish oats milk producer and they've been going for a number of years but more recently they've become hugely popular in the united states and they needed to raise capital in order to grow the business and they have taken money from uh, from the chinese government as well as blackrock uh, mm-hmm. two investors which i think a lot of the people who support oatly uh, have a huge problem with the fact that money has been taken from these these uh, these sources I just wanted to find out from you, is that something that you've also been seeing, that there is a demand that capital needs to be more transparent and more ethical? Uh, the big asset managers, are they under pressure to to really be uh, quite honest about where they, they're putting their money uh, to not be investing in things that are damaging for people and planet? Yeah, I, this to my mind is probably the biggest trend happening at the moment in in the investing world and it's going to be the biggest trend over the next couple of decades uh, you know colloquially esg is the phrase environmental social and governance um and and there is you know and and it's pinned onto the millennials who who suddenly came through you know post baby boomers and 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 uh, well, myself i was going to say us a bit but i'm a uh an excellent the whole idea around hang on this is you know this is our only planet let's protect it that people do matter um that that we can't just you know be be uh, capitalists with nose in the trough and nothing else matters which was kind of the the, the concept up into the 80s and even you know gordon gecko uh, greed is good type of 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 story and we've definitely seen this coming through you know nike probably always made their shoes in sweatshops no one really cared until about 20 years ago and suddenly that pressure started and this is definitely going to be old mutual just a couple of weeks ago launched the first active uh, esg fund in south africa unitrust fund in south africa uh, the research that comes out of the us shows quantifiably that companies with really strong environmental social and governance scores just do better as businesses mm. you know I, I was yeah it, it's just it's just a better business it's mm. just if if your business model is sort of pillage well that's really good until there's nowhere left to pillage mm. type of scenario yeah. you know I've always jokingly said that you know the core metric out of out of uh, Karl Marx's uh, communist manifesto the, the the takeaway for me was that capitalism will eat itself mm. in its pursuit of more and more profit it eventually eats its consumers and there's no one left to sell to right. and the only way to fix that is by conscious investing about caring about your environment about caring about uh, uh, the, the stakeholders the and stakeholders are staff it's customers it's if you're an oil and gas company it's the communities around where you pump your oil and gas mm. um, it's around governance it's it's diversity that the research on diversity is is quantifiably that you know if you've got 
10 people on a board and they're all the same. Now, typically in, in, in the corporate culture, they're going to be white men, but even whatever they were, if they were all black women or whatever, mm. your lack of diversity hinders your ability to grow. And, 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 and the evidence is there, the research is there. And, and we're definitely in South Africa, it's early days. Even in the rest of the world, it's 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 early days, but I think it's going to become a, a bigger and bigger trend. And I think uh, boards and, and and companies the world over, listed and unlisted, are going to have to suddenly say, as you say, your Swedish uh, 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 Oatly company, you know, okay, they needed capital, and BlackRock, you know, maybe not the worst in the world, Chinese government. But uh, you know, if you're trying to 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 present yourself as a certain type, you've you've got to you've got to live your your philosophies, and you've got to live it throughout your entire corporate culture. Yeah, and I think it's more than just uh, you know PR because what I found quite interesting is I just got sent that article yesterday, so I was having a look at some of the responses from that company Oatly, and they seem to be really taken aback. Uh, uh, by the accusations that were coming from their customers. So they were like, what are you talking about? It's just money. You know, where we get it from, we need to grow the product. Uh, but people were absolutely incensed. And, you know, I suppose as people do on, on online platforms, they're like, well, I'm never going to buy yeah, yeah. Oatly ever again. And, but, um, I do find it quite interesting that you say that those companies that do practice, um, more ethical business uh, behavior, tend to financially do better as well i um that's that's really yeah. interesting and, and their challenges you know and maybe it means that you grow less because you can't get the capital that you want so you right. never become a global sort of company and it's not the worst thing in the world because you know shipping product around the world well carbon emissions mm. you know um so maybe you get smaller businesses maybe you crowd fund and yeah crowdfunding is always a great idea until you try it and then like no one pitches up you get five bucks only or, so, or something like that yeah um but yeah and and finding ethical capital in in, in this environment it, it's not easy um but but uh, the consumers are going to push back and, and you know that we shout louder than than we actually are because of the likes of social media and that, that's a, a bad thing but it's also perhaps a good thing sometimes it depends I suppose which side of the fence you're sitting, which side of the fence you're shouting from. Mm. Um, but it absolutely does. And, and Unilever is the poster child for it, uh, a company that, that embraced ESG before it was called ESG. Um, they've got it through their entire corporate structure uh, and, and you know, has, has, in terms of all the sort of fancy fundamental metrics of you know, return on, on, on equity and, and all of those sort of numbers, uh, Unilever is, is, is one of the best companies in the world. Because mm. it's not just the business model that needs to change, it's the economic system itself which needs to be more sustainable. Um, yeah. I also think one of the things out of this pandemic is going to be, and I use the phrase hyper-local, and, and that's not quite right, but what the internet did is it it removed time and geography, right? You, me and you are in the same time zones, the same continent, but we're in different cities and that's not a problem. Um, yeah, I play online chess and I play with Russians and Americans and you log on, you take your turn and you come back a day or three later and they've moved and now it's your turn. What we've seen with the pandemic is, is you know, global supply chain, that just-in-time supply chain, seriously under pressure. I mean, frankly, cracking all over the place. It'll be returned again. But I think we're going to see that, you know, 
my wife and I have always been, a, you know, kind of shop local, but so much more conscious of that. You know, if, if I go to my deli next door and buy my butter there, I probably pay a bit more, but that helps his kids go to school and him to keep a job. It helps a farmer 50 Ks down the road, that hyper local. Cool. And that that plays into, for example, the, the the Oatly out of Sweden and the like, where the idea of global dominance, well, that might be an old-fashioned idea going forward. Mm. You know, m- maybe we don't need to be multi-billionaires. Maybe we can stop at millionaires in a sense, you know, or, or you know, just at the first million and say, it's a lot of money. It's actually more than one person can spend. We can pause now. Mm. Um, and, and I think the pandemic is, is going to push that. And I think it's going to play into a lot around sort of things such as the donut economics mm. into the ESG investing um, as, as we sort of reposition and re-realize, you know, the world that we live in. And we kind of lift our eyes from the grindstone and, and, and look around at, at, at what is out there. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And you're sounding a bit like a historian rather than someone who's talking about the future because that's, you know, the village. You know, that is the um, buying from the the butcher and the baker and the guy around the corner because, you know, you're supporting your community. And I think that's, as you say, maybe one of the, the, the good outcomes of the pandemic is that we just have more of an awareness and a more consciousness of that as to where our money actually goes. Mm. Is it going to some offshore faceless corporation or are we supporting someone local? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and it, I, it's in a sense, it, it's using the power of our money. And, and I don't mean that in a nasty sense, but yeah. you know, my money is going to help someone, make someone's weekend better. You're right. Do I want to send it to a nameless corporate corporation in some country somewhere that I've never visited? Or do I want to send it to the guy next door who's actually going to, you know, send his kids to a school and, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why people are so upset with Oatly is because there's, you know, hipsters buy this thing. It's, uh, it's oat mm-hmm. milk. It's, uh, <laughs> it's non-dairy. Um, so now by me ordering my double latte, I'm helping the, the BlackRock CEO buy his fourth Ferrari. It's like, I, I don't want to do yeah. that. <laughs> and I, yeah. understandably, people just are pushing back. Um, so that's a good point. Yeah. And, and I appreciate, as I said, from Oatly's perspective, they want to dominate the world. But I think in the future, perhaps dominating the world is not going to be the same yeah. sort of the master of the universe idea might actually be looked at with disdain rather than with, mm. with envy. Yeah, such a good point. Sure. Okay, Simon, I'm not going to keep you too much longer. I know you're a busy guy, but um, I found that really interesting. Uh, I listen to you all the time on TV, and I know that you chat to some uh, some very clever people on, on TV, but I think it was just great to have such a, a cool, stripped-down, one-on-one conversation. So thank you very much for your time. No, it was an absolute pleasure. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Heroes of Futurism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and we'll see you next time. Cheers.